Welcome to Take This Poem Podcast, where we explore the rich, wild things that good poems can do in the everyday lives of ordinary folks. I'm your host, Mary Guidis. Whether you're a longtime poetry lover like I am, or just barely interested, I invite you to take this poem. I hope it amends the soil of your life. I'm here today with Craig Goodworth, a fellow enjoyer of poetry and himself a poet and artist. And at the time we're recording, he's my neighbor here in town, but probably by the time the episode airs, he'll be off to a new home in the Southwest. So I'm really happy to have him here for a while before he leaves to have this conversation today. So thanks for being here, Craig. Thank you. I know it's a really busy time and lots in your head and on your calendar, but I'm glad you could come have a little poetry chat before you go. Um, and you just finished your MDiv since the last time I saw you, so congratulations. Um, and that's one of the things that I was wondering about is what that theological education and poetry or art in general have to do together hmm. for you in your life studies and your future plans. Yeah. Well, I can answer it two ways. Um, I found my way to seminary on accident. I had a thesis that I wrote years ago in a, um, a program at Northern Arizona University. And the, the program theme was Envisioning Good and Sustainable Communities. And I wrote that thesis while living with, uh, with several Orthodox monks in Northern New Mexico. And the uh, thesis met criteria and I graduated. And a friend of mine suggested that maybe I should try to turn that thesis into something else that wouldn't just rot in a library. Mm. And he said there was a um, writing fellowship that a seminary he had heard of was putting out. And I put in for it and I got it. So I, I for the first time in my you know, adult life, went into a community not as an artist, but as a, a writer in residence. Mm. And they would say, you know, there's a writer here. And I'd look around to see who it was. Mm -hmm. And I forgot I was the one, you know, the sculptor, I could answer that drawer, mm. you know, I'd worked obviously uh, visual art. Um, so then I, I um, you know, I did the, the writing and had a really um, rich time there. And then I began to, to meet some of the seminarians and I heard some of the classes and coursework that was being undertaken. And I, uh, when I was done, I started dipping into some of it just for my own, to, to satisfy my own appetites. Uh, spirituality in the body, I remember, was a class I really uh, wanted to get in on. There was a class on prayer. There was a class on theopoetics, mm. which is, um, yeah, interesting stuff. So anyway, so I found my way there on accident. Then we life happens. We had moved to Oregon, had kids, and... And, oh, uh, so this was before Oregon. Yeah. Okay. I started this MDiv 10 years ago. This is like oh, a wow. decade-long journey. Wow. My first course was actually 10 years ago. And I, I never actually intended th that I'd need to finish it. You know, it was, a, it was good enough to have just been a, um, dipping into that, that, uh, that theological language and community. But as the years progressed, I began wondering about and continue to wonder about what chaplains do. And if that work doesn't belong to me. Um, in the second half of my life. And then the other thing that happened was, you know, uh, life happens and we had, um, we had miscarried. And I, you know, it's very uh, common um, because it, the more I talk about it, the more I hear other people talk mm -hmm. about it with me. But it's, you know, deeply personal. And, and it was uh, kind of getting blindsided by that. So I, 
after that, actually, maybe four or five months after that, I felt clear I wanted to go back. And specifically, I had an appetite for the wisdom tradition in the Old Testament. I wanted to, to reckon with Job. Mm. And I wanted to study that whole other, um, all those, what you might call those, those books in the Bible that don't add up to the easy covenant narrative. Ecclesiastes yeah. and some of yeah. these, which, which I think need to be there. And, and uh, Okay, so reckoning with Job sounds like a lifetime's pursuit. Were you able to make any <laughs> progress in your I found, I found some. I found some, the beginning of some wisdom. Okay. I don't know, yeah. And then Ecclesiastes was also a real treat. Right. There's a there's a, a gal there. Um, she's my kind of um, Old Testament teacher. She curses and drinks whiskey, and she's really brilliant. Mm. And Nancy Bowen was a treat to study with. Where where was this? What this is at the Earlham School of Religion. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you're making me want to go. It's uh, it's it was really a good experience for me, you know. And I did it at the right time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, and then in the last in the last year, I was actually going to consider doing. Um, the, the chaplaincy, what they call CPE, mm. and actually test that in a veteran's hospital or a prison. And then the COVID and all that hit. So I ended up working on my manuscript. And these poems ended up really coming into um, the context of the seminary as writing as ministry. Okay, so you wrote a poetry manuscript for... For some of my... Masters. Some of it. Okay. I, I also am doing some other things, and mm-hmm. I've completed some other things mm-hmm. in this last year. Are you still considering chaplaincy? Yeah. And would you have art or poetry in any way be a part of that? I don't know how I couldn't. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I, I do wonder about it. I um, there, There's, you know, formally doing the work of the chaplain, which I don't know that I won't. Uh, one day ahead Mm -hmm. and then there's also um, doing readings in places like prisons and to me if if I could have my work hold up there and a coffee shop in Portland I'd feel like I'm getting the best of both worlds Mm -hmm. you know I'd I'd be particularly proud of of thinking that my work could hold up in both Mm -hmm. so I I do want to test it that way in the years ahead do you have a manuscript in progress that you would hope to publish yeah I do yeah I worked pretty close with Dave yeah uh, this last fall on it. Okay. Well, congratulations on finishing that up. Yeah, I might add one other brief thing mm-hmm. on it. I mean, you know, if, as an artist who studies some other things, I mean, I was an artist when I went to envision good and sustainable communities. I went in an artist, I left an artist. But I obviously learned a, a lot of new language. Uh, theological education gives me access to a whole new language. Mm-hmm. I don't know yet how useful um, it, it, it will be. I, I sense it's going to be very useful, but I haven't tested it all. Mm-hmm. So I'm, you know, while I've graduated, I'm doing a couple of papers this summer that actually ask this question right on the nose. You know, what of what use is a theological education to an artist today? Mm-hmm. Can I, can I make uh, meaning with words like apocalyptic, with prophetic, mm-hmm. with lament? Um, is is the, are these words uh, bearing witness and the, the whole entire sort of theological? inheritance of these words is is that useful is that timely to to the work of the artist today and i sense that it is yeah uh, i think those words are, are are powerful words um so that that's what i'm i guess my my integrative effort is to see how much i can how much mileage i can get out of bringing the work of the artist and a theological education together yeah i love that i love the idea of ripping away that barrier between words that would be used for theology and then words that would be used for what you see around you and what you do and what you make and letting those be together happening at the same time. So 
So when I knew you were going to move out of town and I was thinking about having a talk with you, poems that I was remembering, I filed them all in my mind under the category of poetry out loud and in person and the fun things, the hard, you know, awkward things that can happen when people get together to talk about poetry, share poems. And I think we both value poetry out loud and in person. And we've also been in the same place at the same time when that was going on. Um, mostly in the context of a group of poets who got together to talk about poetry and to workshop poems. At some point, something reminded you of a poem that was about beauty or called beauty, and you pulled out your phone, got that poem on there, and read it, and just obviously were having a lot of delight in sharing that poem in that moment when it fit with what we were talking about. So I've wanted to hear that poem again and asked you to bring it today and was hoping that you would read that one, share it with our listeners. I, I would be glad to. It's a pleasure to, to, sh to read an excerpt of B.H. Fairchild's poem entitled Beauty. This is in many ways what got me into this. When, when I was at a conference in New Mexico and B.H. Fairchild walked up to the podium and did a reading. And I remember um, poetry out loud, the way he embodied this stuff, the way mm -hmm. he went white knuckled and um, the, the physicality in the language. Um, and he, yeah, he read this among other pieces. And I said, uh, boy, I talk too much. I need to start writing this stuff down and seeing yeah. if I can make it work on the page. So anyway, B.H. Uh, Fairchild, Beauty. And there's a little epigraph. Therefore, their sons grow suicidally beautiful. James Wright, Autumn Begins in Martins Ferry, Ohio. One. We are at the Borgello in Florence, and she says, What are you thinking? And I say, Beauty. Thinking of how very far we are now from the machine shop in the dry fields of Kansas, the treeless horizons of slate skies and the muted passions of roughnecks and scrabble farmers drunk and romantic enough to weep more or less silently at the darkened end of the bar out of, what else? Loneliness, meaning the ache of thwarted desire of, in a word, beauty. Or rather, its absence. And it occurs to me again that no male member of my family has ever used this word in my hearing for, or anyone else's except in reference perhaps to a new pickup or dead deer. This insight, this backward vision first came to me as a young man as some weirdness of the airwaves slipped through the static of our new Motorola with a discussion of beauty between Robert Penn Warren and Paul Weiss at Yale College. We were in Kansas eating barbecue-flavored potato chips and waiting to Father Knows Best to float up through the snow of rural TV in 1963. I felt transported, stunned. Here were two grown men discussing beauty, seriously and with dignity, as if they and the topic were as normal as normal topics of discussion between men, such as soybean prices or why the commodities market was a sucker's game or Oklahoma football or Gimpy Niederland almost dying from his hemorrhoid operation. They were discussing beauty and tossing around allusions to Plato and Aristotle and someone named Patter. 
and they might be homosexuals. That would be a natural conclusion, of course, since here are two grown men talking about beauty instead of scratching their crotches and cursing the goddamn government trying to run everybody's business. Not a beautiful thing, that. The government. Not beautiful. Though a man would not use that word. One time my Uncle Ross from California called my mom's Sunday dinner centerpiece lovely, and my father left the room. Clearly troubled by the word lovely, coupled probably with the very idea of California and the fact that my Uncle Ross liked to tap dance. The light from the Venetian blinds, the autumn silver Kansas light laving the table that Sunday is what I recall now because it was beautiful. Though I, of course, would not have said so then. Beautiful. And so many moments forgotten, but later remembered, come back to us in slants and pools and uprisings of light. Beautiful in itself. But more beautiful mingled with memory. The light leaning across my mother's carefully set table, across the empty chair beside my Uncle Ross. The light filtering down the green plastic slats in the roof of the machine shop where I worked with my father so many afternoons, standing or crouched in pools of light, and the sweat with men who knew the true meaning of labor and money and other hard true things, and did not, did not ever use the word beauty. Hmm. Do you think poetry lets men talk about beauty when they wouldn't otherwise be able to? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think... Poetry allows men to do a lot of things they probably need to do and can't find ways to do otherwise. Um, Seems like he fit the word beauty into that poem as many times as he could, like making up for lost time. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think uh, I think that uh, poetry perhaps gives, gives people, men, uh, permission to, uh, to, to, to resurrect language that is dead or, or not outside the bounds or something. I mean, beauty is a tricky word. I I, uh, I think sometimes paying attention to when, when beauty happens and maybe not even naming it is the challenge. Mm -hmm. When men fish and they do that well, right. I think there's beauty happening. Mm -hmm. um, when they when they, um, when they can find pace with one another working with their bodies, I'm thinking about some of the work I do with guys, and whether it's shovels or spades or uh, rock work, you know? Mm -hmm. And when you can actually work with the guy, um, whose body you're kind of depending on to pace and anticipate. I find beauty in that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I necessarily name it out there, you know, during the lunch hour, but yeah. uh, I, I definitely uh, recognize evidence of it. Sure. It's interesting that he said his, the men in his life could use that word about a dead deer. Or a pickup, yeah. Yeah, or a truck. Yeah, those are the two. That's a beauty. And then they, there's later in the poem, he says, there's this awful moment where he reflects on Oswald shooting Kennedy. Mm -hmm. And he says, you know, you, when somebody says, you have to admit, that shot from that distance was a beaut. And this awful um, word of, you know, yeah. truncating beauty down to beaut and it, it being, you know, remarkable that that bullet could have landed where it did mm -hmm. on the head of a president from that distance. So the word shifts throughout the poem. Yeah. It's fascinating yeah. that way. Mm -hmm. And he's in front of a piece by Donatella. Sorry. No. And he's in front of high yeah. art, you know, yeah. from the machine shop. So there's a whole range and a landscape of beauty here. Yeah. Yeah. I love that contrast of between this 
the Donatello and then the light coming through the, and I can just picture the ripply kind of plasticky roof of the yeah. shed and both of those things being beautiful. And the museum light coming onto the sculpture and that, that wonderful contrast. So I was telling my brother-in-law a tiny bit about the time that you, I was telling him about preparing for this episode and I didn't remember exactly what poem it was. I knew it was about beauty and how you kind of busted out with it spontaneously. And he said, he wishes there was a, there were more places to bring a poem out spur of the moment and just say it. But I guess he's tried throughout his life and it's always been kind of awkward. Huh. It's never quite worked. And granted, we were in a setting where we were already talking about poetry. But why do you think it's so difficult outside of that setting to feel free to just pull something up on your phone and read it to a group? Do you do that? Do you read poems to people who I, aren't already? I'm pretty careful. I mean, yeah. that can be really dangerous, reading poems to people that don't much like poetry. Yeah. There's a there's a kind of naivete in that because it, um, it doesn't land, um, in my experience. It can go really bad. Yeah. However, there are times, um, I, I was referring to those guys I work with, when we would, um, I, I've read a couple of things over the course of, of uh, working with those guys in the truck that, mm -hmm. that have been on, that have been things I've been working on. I prefaced them with, you know, I could tell you this story or I could read you something mm. that sort of is, you know, sort of the truest condensation of the whole thing. What do you think? Yeah, so that's your own work. Yeah. I wonder if that makes it easier because you're sharing something you point. made with someone else. Yeah. But he was saying he had poems memorized. He specifically mentioned when he was wooing my sister and that he managed to say one of them once, but in general, it was just more difficult than he ever expected to start quoting a poem. And he wishes poems were said more often and that it was a more normal thing to do. Well, but he, he wonders what's soul. the barrier. <laughs> it, it would have been like that in the world I read about that I didn't get to live in. I mean, it would yeah. have been, you know, the poetry wouldn't have been on the page. It would have been, you know, performed, spoken, enacted, embodied. Mm -hmm. And old, old, you know, the old, the old, old poetry was spoken um, and recited. Obviously, it was, it was, it was verbal. It was for the ear and the, and the mm -hmm. body, not just the eye. Um, I but I am remembering, yeah, that that I've, there's been a few little uh, flashes of my my twenties. You know, using poetry in bars, other people's poems, and, and maybe wowing or earning some, you know, kind of points or something. Um, I can remember quoting Emily Dickinson and, and mm -hmm. um, you know, cutie pie stuff in a bar, but that isn't what we're talking about. Maybe we're talking it about feels it really. like showing off. Maybe that's part of the problem. Yeah. I mean, not all poems are as easy to take in the first yeah, time. You know, some poems true. are difficult and they pride themselves that way. You, they need to be read three or four times. The language is a bit, uh, you know, they're poemy poems, frankly. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't even necessarily um, do well with really poemy poems the first time through. I have to sit down with them. But I think so, something more in the plain style. Mm-hmm. And I know you mentioned having poetry at your wedding and some family members' weddings. And funerals are another time that a poetry might be likely to brought out for those more formal occasions on the casual level it doesn't happen and it might be because we as a culture don't share a background of poetry like i know still in russia every school child memorizes this set of poems that's very important to oh. so if maybe if you were going to quote a line from a poem knowing that everybody else knew it as well right. because you'd all learned it maybe shared. go over yeah. well better than just someone randomly 
I think we're diminished because of this. I think we're we're living below our privilege. Yeah. I think that yeah, poetry can do things that we're not letting it do, mm-hmm. and it, it being a shared, um, yeah, something to draw to, uh, something to mark time, something to to offer as as an alternative to um, winging it. You know. Yeah. It's already been said. Yeah. And, yes, I love it. That's one of my favorite parts about having poems memorized or snippets of them memorized is that's where my brain can go when it wants to think something that's already been said perfectly and just fit right in there and not have to yeah reinvent it like and when we memorize them they we carry them in our body and i know likely for you as well as me they change over time Mm -hmm. you know certain poems that i i know in my 20s are different in my 40s -hmm. yeah yeah All right, I want to switch over a little bit because in the aforementioned poets group, we also would workshop our own writing at times. And um, frankly, I just remember some heated moments that came up in discussions of your poetry. That's really interesting to me. I'm interested in that aspect of poetry out loud in person. I ask this with respect and friendly regards, but I'm wondering why do you think that your poems at times caused some of those more heated discussions. Do you remember what I'm talking about? Yeah, I'm remembering of, yeah. one one specific uh, poem, but I'm sure I'm sure it it happens um, in smaller smaller manifestations re- semi regularly, and I don't necessarily go in naively thinking, oh, they're gonna love they're gonna this. love this one. <laughs> But I don't necessarily stick it in there to say, ooh, I can't wait to watch them, you know, flop around like a fish when I read this line. I, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm writing, at this point I'm writing, I'm writing work that I, I, I think of as serious and I have to serve the work and, and um, let the poem live up to itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I definitely don't foreclose subject matter that is uh, not beautiful. Um, sometimes the absence of beauty and witnessing to that is um, maybe, um, yeah, where I feel called to write. So, yeah, I, I'm thinking that um, I'm not surprised. I mean, my work over the course of, of my practice in, in whatever medium has um, had some pretty strong reactions. And, and then we're talking about, you know, poetry out loud. Um, I, I might get away with some of those poems if I was five foot four, but I'm not. I'm, I'm a big brutish white dude with a beard. So, I mean, there's a body behind the work. And mm-hmm. I'm not saying that I, you know, make more or any less of that fact. I just acknowledge that, you know, certain bodies can get away with things that others can't. And, yeah. um, and there's um, sometimes, frankly, I don't think it's about me. And other times I think it maybe is. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I guess I, I've always felt like um, this sort of affinity with the prophetic tradition, which is truth telling. And um, even if people are going to call it chocolate, if it's shit, I call it shit. Mm-hmm. And I won't let it go as chocolate. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think that, um, that reckoning with, um, with what I've witnessed, either, yeah, on behalf of another person's pain or on behalf of a world that is not set to rights. Mm-hmm. Yes, you know, Sunday happened. I think we've talked about this yeah. a little bit, but Easter there's a lot of evidence of Saturday and there's still some Friday going on in this world. And I, I guess my orientation would be that, um, you know, that, that this is theology talk here, but the kingdom's, you know, already not yet. Well, mm-hmm. some folks would say most of it's already here. 
And other folks might say, there's, there's a lot that's in the not yet. This is not as good as it gets. And I would be more persuaded by the latter. I think there's, there's deep brokenness and, and a lot of pain in this world. But how much reckoning, you mentioned the word reckoning with the things that are dark or ugly. How much reckoning does an artist or poet need to do to transform something into art or poetry as opposed to just reporting or bearing a straight witness like here's this ugly thing I saw and giving it as is for the reader to then take upon themselves and deal with. But what's the responsibility for the artist to do some of that you know, working through and reckoning before it's brought before other people who will. Well, I mean, we're adults in our group, so I don't feel like anybody, yeah. you know, can cannot handle the Pullman process. Or, I mean, that's what we're doing. Um, but I, you know, I'm thinking about that work that I I've been doing actually in the latter half after working with Dave. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been pressing into this uh, this work of my former siblings, right? These foster yeah. children. Yeah. And, you know, at the end of the day, for, for things to change, uh, this is a simple recipe. It's, it's not fully adequate, but I think it makes sense. We have to think it, we have to feel it, and we have to do something about it. Mm-hmm. And art is really good for feeling it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think we can just feel it. Mm-hmm. Say the systemic problems with, with, you know, damaged children and foster care and all yeah. this kind of stuff. But I think, I think we have to feel it. I think we have to think it. Mm-hmm. But I also think we have to do something about it. And I, I think my work does belong as an artist to the embodied and the um, the the um, the sensuous, the um, the the poetic and embodied, the sensuous experience of feeling is what I think in many ways what art is really good for. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it stops there. I think it, you have to think it as well and not just feel it. And then I ultimately think activism and and getting up and you know doing something and getting out of one seat. Mm-hmm. I think. Um, so in that larger framework, I think I, I see the work that I'm pressing into with these kids, you know, is, uh, well, I need to um, I need to write it. I'm, I'm drawing these kids, actually, mm-hmm. from memory. And I don't know if that work will ever be public, but I know it's mm-hmm. work that's work I need to make maybe before the work, yeah. uh, before the next iteration. Yeah, I could see it having that role for you as a writer. But do you know what I mean that sometimes... A poem can be, hey, here's this horrible story. You're not going to believe how bad this is. But yeah, doesn't, I mean, that's and is like passing along yeah, 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 yeah. of, you know, this is going to make you feel gross when you hear I this mean, I, I know thing, that... as opposed to, you know, <laughs> somehow tying it into everything else that's true, like trying to make that stretch outside I, yeah, of somebody's the ugly. doing the old pornographic thing, you know. The, the, just the, the sort of spectacle and yeah. the, the, the sort of you're driving down the freeway and you want to look and see how bad is it, right? Yeah. That's not bearing witness. No. That's a whole that's different thing. That's different. Yeah, that's, that's not, uh, that's not uh, I would say, to be an artist, you have, to, you have to see the world with soft eyes and you have to look at hard things. Mm-hmm. And I don't think rubbernecking like we're talking about or getting off <laughs> on the spectacle of gore is anything... So, so yeah, I, I don't think that 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 is. Uh, oh, I don't know. I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to get behind that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But I think when folks are really um, are really working with um, telling telling true stories from what they've what they've encountered and and wanting to um, to be. 
Okay, I'm thinking about uh, George Floyd now. I'm thinking about those those high school girls. I saw this in the New York Times. One of them was standing there, and I remember she said this. I'd have to get the article to quote it perfect, but she said, I, I saw what that police officer was doing. I knew something really bad was happening, mm-hmm. and I, I kind of just wanted to walk away, but I knew that I couldn't, even though I couldn't do anything about it, mm. and she stayed and watched, mm. and I thought, gosh, you know, that's really powerful um, in a way. Because uh, later she does witness mm-hmm. to what she saw. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people that would say there's something really wrong going on right now. But I know I can't do anything about it, so there's no point in looking at it. Right. And they would have walked and they would have gone behind the, right. the little convenient mart and they would have gone on Facebook. Mm-hmm. But these th- this girl in particular, and there was another one in the article that didn't do that. And I think, um, I think as a kid, when I would see a lot of pain and the, the kids that would come through my home... I, the best I could do was pity. I mean, I was six years old and mm-hmm. seven years, you know, I felt uh, powerless to really do anything. But I didn't look away. I didn't go watch TV. You know, I picked that stuff up and went in my body. And now, you know, in middle age, I mean, I feel like it's mine to bear witness, not just mm-hmm. witness uh, with, with pity, but to do more. So then I started thinking about that framework, you know, feeling it, thinking it, doing something about it. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, pitying or having a reader pity a bunch of kids, that's not the end. Uh, that's not where I want that project or that work to land. Mm-hmm. I don't want the poems just to do that. But I, d- I don't think that uh, that I would be, you know, doing my work well if it didn't move beyond uh, witness and, and a kind of pity to a kind of, you know, an empathetic participation. And, you know, yeah. we're in the social body. This is ours to bear. Yeah. And we, you know, we're brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. And we're fathers and mothers. And, and um, yeah. So, so do you know what poets do any come to mind that are examples to you of bearing witness in a way that's beautiful and constructive and done right other than Carolyn Forche? Yeah, good. Well, I was going to say Jeremiah it. the prophet, but yeah. Yeah, other <laughs> Carolyn than the Forche. Bible and Carolyn Forche. <laughs> I'm going to push you here. Forche is unbelievable. Yeah. Um, no, I, I would, uh, that's a really, that's a really, really good question. Um, why don't I? Why don't I? Yeah. Why don't I swallow that and think on what's on my shelf that has given me um, clarity here? Have you read any? We can take some of this out if we need to. Uh-huh. Have you read any of the Matthew Dickman that Dave? I like that what I read. I that's who popped into my mind without premeditating this. Is, yeah, I is. think he does that. Mm-hmm. He tells his story of his social location, and he doesn't curate a bunch of harder things out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and things that go on in his family. And he wrote one. I mean, at some point, I might get up the nerve to share one of his poems. That's a confessional poem, and I mean, it goes all the way. He doesn't try to like stay a few steps back from what he did. He just pushes through this horrible thing he said yeah. and the effect it had on the person that he was with that was so almost unforgivable and um, I mean I haven't brought it to the group because I can barely even like stand to read it out loud it's so but it strikes intense. you as a brave poem or a, a, or brave, a mawkish sort of sentimental no poem. a brave poem yeah, like yeah. I see a lot of almost confession like here's this kind of cute thing that I did that was wrong or you know look how brave I'm being to confess this much but he goes all the way through to the like mm. rottenness of what he did in that moment and yeah. said to somebody else and 
So he he comes to mind as a as bearing witness to what's going on in his family, the things even that he does, and the effects of his own actions on other people. And yeah, um, but I was wondering if you had anybody. Fred else. Marchant comes to mind. He was the one that I brought that wrote about his sister in the. Um, oh yeah, I need yeah. a pencil. I need to write some of this down. Uh, this is not not uh, poetry; it's prose. But Tobias Wolf does an unbelievable job in his work, telling um, telling stories that I think bear witness. Okay. He has. I, I would say Tobias Wolf has soft eyes, and he's able to look at really hard things. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, we have to look at hard things, but we have to do it with soft eyes, and we have to have soft eyes, and not just have soft eyes and look at soft things. We have to look yeah, at. So yeah. That's that's my little. You know. To be an artist, that's according to Craig. That's how you do it, mm-hmm. <laughs> for whatever that's worth. But you know, if you think about the prophetic, and I, I mean, I'm not trying to be Bible man here, but I, I definitely that is my context with the, 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 the power of the prophet is not necessarily in, in the way they shout, though they shout. It's in their tears, mm-hmm. it's in the contrite and the lament, and it's not even so much that they're that concerned about the people that they're reading their poems to. If it makes them sad, it's they talk about what makes God sad. Mm-hmm. This is Abraham Heschel. And this is a very, um, you know, it's kind of weighty and maybe it's a little bombastic to talk like this, but I I think a lot about, you know, what makes God mad, what makes God sad, and even a little bit about what makes God mad, what makes God bad. Um, Vengeance is mine, thus saith the Mm -hmm. Lord. I mean, that's arguably, that's bad. Um, Don't get your vengeance. He'll get even in spades, you know? Yeah. Um, so I, I do think that that, that is an um, important piece. I, I actually am working on something. I don't know whether it'll land before I leave or not. But as I'm going back to Arizona in the desert I grew up in, there's been a piece that's been uh, coming up and made it. Make me, make me, make me. Mm-hmm. It's actually about me and experience I had with a troubled horse in about my 20s and, and running a horse into the ground. And um, thinking about um, the, what what led that poem is actually somebody at the seminary saying, "Man, if you're going to go all the way with this, you know, prophetic criticism, art stuff. I mean, where is the um, where's the confession and the lament? Mm. And I mean, it's that comes up in my work, but it hasn't come. I haven't told that story about the horse. Mm-hmm. And um, it's um, it's an important one because because in microcosm I'm doing the thing that's following our earth right now. I'm having dominion and I'm exerting power over. Mm. And who and and what am I to um, to do? I'm culpable. I'm not pure, you know. And I think it's important. I think sometimes some of that um, that conversation around. Um, you know, big paradigm shifts. We can do that from a place of purity, as if we can't understand why power differentials would happen or something. And I'm mm. I'm I'm one that exercised utter um, dominion over over an animal that had troubles, that had its own. Um, um, but I ultimately won. I, I took um, that one reading of the Bible very literally and ran this horse into the ground. Mm. The poem's called Pegasus, and mm. and there's no winged horse at the end of this one. So I think that I think that that's a brave. Uh, I think it's brave when people talk about their culpability and the larger sins of mm-hmm. today. And mm-hmm. I, I don't. I, I get a little bit weary with it's. Um, you know, we're, we're kind of if poems don't aren't written from a place of kind of being on the same sinking ship with the rest right. of us. Right. I think it's easier. Yeah, to lament what those guys over there are doing. And harder, like I'm thinking of that Matthew Dickman poem, to admit your own c- 
complicitness is that a word complicity yeah. <laughs> in culpability the evil. Culpa- yes, we got yes, skidded the game yeah. nobody's really that pure mm-hmm. even even you know consciously unconsciously omission commission yeah and i think art art allows us to recognize beauty and i think art allows us to tell the truth mm-hmm. at least that's been my experience art is a way of telling the truth a little bit i haven't quite said it yet till i've written that poem about that horse and I need yeah. I need Pegasus. I need the mythic image of the winged horse mm-hmm. to crumple like an insect in this thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. I look forward to reading that one sometime. I'm sure it'll be a zinger to end my time in Oregon. Well, yeah. Nobody will have their hackles lifted with this one, <laughs> I promise. <laughs> but speaking of your poetry, there was one poem that I asked you to bring today of yours. Um, and it had a generous helping of sweetness included with the bitterness, so I couldn't help um, really liking it. Remind me again how to say the title, Zenzut. Yeah, that's Goethe, right? Um, so I've talked in previous episodes about what I call a poetry ambush, which is you're just going about your business, you're not expecting to hear a poem, you're not expecting it to blow you away, and then it does. And that you're in a, just a vulnerable state and the poem just jumps out and gets you. And I've had a couple people share on the show too about times that a po- poem ambushed them. And I think that this poem of yours was a total poetry ambush story in my life. You sent it an attachment to the group. I opened it up. I started reading and was just moved and surprised beyond what I had expected when I started. So... I think I'll always remember this poem and I'm really glad you were willing to bring it and share it this evening. So go ahead and, I mean, if you have anything to say, feel free, but I'm looking forward to hearing it again. Well, Mary, your, your affection for this little thing has, uh, <laughs> has, has helped it um, through a couple of revisions. Um, I, I do like this piece. I, you know, I write from different parts of myself. This is would be a, a very different kind of thing than the um, than the Pegasus piece just described. This is written from uh, marking time and in and in my domestic life with my kids and in this this sort of crazy COVID year, trying to make home a, a place of learning, a place that um, is is life giving. Um, so it's called Zainzut. Uh That's the the Goethe. This is um, that notion of longing, right? Mm. And it's got an expensive title, which I, I do that. Dave presses me. Dave's a fun one to talk to. He says, I don't know about that Pegasus stuff and mm-hmm. Zane Zook for titles. But I, I live between high and low culture. And I, I do think that that's mine to call it this for now. Uh, anyway, so it's, there's an epigraph and I'll, 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 w- I'll wait into it. From the Odyssey, 956, lines 122 through 144. And then this liquor, 12 two-handled jars of brandy, pure and fiery. Brandy has a way of preserving fruit that would otherwise rot. This poem's not about a gal named Brandy, and not just booze, or brutal joy, or animal desire, or rubbing the reader's nose in human pain. My kids and I decided, after reading the Odyssey, truncated with pictures, to take on the real damn thing. I filled the wood stove, told them to sit on the couch, then gave them chocolate, so long as they promised to keep quiet. I got my sheepskin blanket, something strong to drink, and sat my ass down in my rocking chair. 
Rather than read it at them, I figured a way to hear it told and pressed play. Opening lines. Tell me about a complicated man, Muse. Tell me how he wandered and was lost. And my little guy drew in a notebook and perked up at all the references to horses. My little girl got up and got the illustrated version, then back under her blanket, stared at the middle-aged hero, who her brother says she has a crush. No, daddy's my hero, she says. Somewhere in book three, while an old king remembers, and it wasn't really what he remembered as the feeling in the telling and seeing oak burn deep and hot through the stove's glass door and my children languid in front of the hearth, like those pictures you see of big African cats lounging midday and my manic German shepherd puppy on the floor next to me, lame with a tender paw and snoring, and it happened. For several moments, that rich, sweet throb happened. That feeling that spooked me as a boy walking desert washes at dusk. That happened while driving out of the Badlands, my fiance asleep next to me in the moving truck, making noises like a lamb. That still happens about every time I sit by the creek in the hollow on my grandfather's farm. We're told of Odysseus's raft afloat, and I rock in my chair feeling homesick in my ticky-tacky house. When I was my son's age, I had more than one dream about my bed turning into a boat, and stocked with beef jerky, I used my baseball bats for oars. And there was that sunlit girl in sixth grade who put her gum in my mouth with her tongue, Calypso. If I'm lucky enough to see my death coming, I expect I'll recall with fondness in the last few days of my life the pleasant pain of this longing, this one part sleepy memory, one part foretaste, a pulsing sweet ache in my growing. Every spring, my grandfather went shirtless to the blossoming pear orchard, slid glass bottles over tender young pears, then waited for those tiny pears to grow and ripen. Late summer, he removed the bottles, plucked the leaves, and poured in colorless brandy. His homemade booze, seasoned in the basement, tastes burning and just as sweet. Thank you. Yeah, I'm remembering why that one got to me. I mean, the Odyssey is a heart book for me, so I'm a sucker for the tie-in of that. But also it was just one of those moments of seeing my own habitat in art. There's my wood stove. There's yeah. the floor where the kids are lounging like big cats, like you said. <laughs> and I'm trying to read the real damn book of something to them, and everyone's a little restless. <laughs> Um, so seeing that scene that I spent so much time in and that really isn't like a sexy poetry topic right. was part of it. Just feeling that like, hey, my life's in art and you got at something in there that would have been hard for me to say. And so seeing it in your poem just was such a treat and a surprise. And I love your title because... It's 
like you said, when you were a kid in the desert, you didn't know what to call that thing right. that you were experiencing, where the word for it past and the present come together, and you know it's that strange feeling, and and so now you're trying to reach for a word, and it had to be a word in a different language, right? Like all languages kind of have to come together to even come up mm-hmm. with a name for what that feeling could be, but I got that feeling of Zenzuk myself reading this poem which is another cool thing I feel like when a poem does a work like does accent. the thing yeah. that it's talking about that's so. Karen's Karen's does a beautiful job with that right? oh yeah, yeah yeah definitely so yeah I just really enjoyed that enjoyed that one I I don't know whether these words are gonna convince me when they come out of my mouth but I, I think <laughs> I think you know what what kept me at revising this was trying to bear witness frankly to mm-hmm. the beauty Mm-hmm. of that uh, longing and the, the quotidian ordinariness of, mm-hmm. of my little domestic um, hearth and, and marking that if, if only for, um, for my children, you know, yeah. but, but for me as well. But, yeah. but the idea that this would, something, something really happened and it's, it's um, uh, what, did, what did the anthropologist Ellen Dissoniak say? I think she said, uh, that the fundamental impulse in art and religion is to make special, mm. is to consecrate, mm-hmm. is to set apart. And something happened, and I, and I knew it was set apart, and I knew it mattered. And to try to get language to, to do honor, to, uh, um, to, to be an honest witness to what it was, yeah. you know. Well, I thought that from you, this was actually a courageous poem. And maybe it ties a little bit to the beauty poem that you read first, but... You know, you've had adventures and travels and all these bigger things, but you were willing to write about what happened in a living room and to call it beautiful. Mm. And it's not, I mean, we've talked about this before. It's harder to write about joy than it is about pain oh, to some extent, yeah. but you were willing to. But it's call cheating this if, good if, and, if, if one can't, you mm-hmm. know. I think it is a kind of cheating. And I don't want to be a cheater. Mm-hmm. That's one thing I don't want to be called. Yeah. I'm glad this you didn't cheat so that sees. this could exist. <laughs> yeah, it's a yeah. Good piece. In the same workshop group, I brought some of my first stuff written as an adult, basically, you know, after maybe 15 years off from writing. And it was scary. I had butterflies and bats in my stomach and kind of took some just getting over some fear of humiliation and various things to bring that work. It took some vulnerability and it was worth it because I learned so much through having other people's eyes on the things I wrote, hearing the critiques, hearing their experienced opinions. Um, And you were there for a lot of that and said some things that really helped some of my poems go from kind of muddling around to being better than they were before I brought them. So I really appreciate that. And I asked you off the top of your head to mention a poem that you remember of mine that we worked on. Um, You mentioned a couple, but this was one of them that I actually haven't visited in a while. So I thought I'd print this one out and read it on this episode today. The title is, I Cross the Bridge Facing Against Traffic. Wearing my bimbo celebrity sunglasses, to hide my weathered eyes. My eyes are full of hop feathers and glass. I wish I could walk with them closed for a while. Today the women drivers 
twist their heads to look at me as they pass. I don't know what the men are so focused on. Maybe solving the problem, maybe the road like you're supposed to be. But the women with the extra tabs open in their brains all seem to have a tab for look at that poor lady crossing the bridge. I wonder which variety of trouble she has. When I reach the peak of the bridge, I hang my head over the railing to look way down into the blackberry vines that billow around the creek. Once I saw two does and three fawns playing down there. They were playing hide and seek, even the mothers played. They crouched in the dark brambles and then sprang out at each other with more slyness and glee than I had known deer were capable of. Ever since, I stop and look for them. They weren't there today. My first impression is I'm so glad you don't give us the deer. The expectation is we're going to get the deer as consolation. And sometimes our um, consolation is not that, it's desolation. The deer are not there that day and we have to get on with it. And um, it doesn't, it doesn't, um, it means something. It doesn't mean everything's meaningless, but uh, not giving the deer, I, I personally really like that. Mm. Um, even had you perhaps been writing from life and the deer been there, maybe withholding that in the art. Uh, mm -hmm. For your viewers that maybe would be um, glad, but also kind of sad that the deer showed up because their experiences, they don't get the deer every day. And there's a kind of solidarity with the human experience that, that happens when there's loss, when there's uh, disappointment, when there's yearning and, and lack of fulfillment. But you did have the deer prior. It's not like the deer are not still evidence in the, the world of the poem. Yeah. They're just not there that day. Yeah. And to me, that, that feels... Um, it's like an adult poem, you know? I like it. I'm not clever enough to leave it out even if I saw them, though. So <laughs> it actually well. was a lot more straightforward than that. That's a different level than what I'm working at right now. But I don't know. Since you mentioned miscarriage earlier, I just thought this was an interesting experience as a writer for me because this was the miscarriage poem. Oh, wow. So that happened this summer. And after that, I spent quite a bit of time just taking walks around town, um, staggering under heat and loss, and also feeling some sort of connection, like you mentioned, this experience of grief is common, and I think that's why I mentioned making eye contact with the other women drivers as I walked. And I knew I wanted to write something. And when this was what it was, I was just so surprised. Mm. And yet it was the thing that I needed to say. And I felt satisfied when I was done. Like I had covered that little thing that I needed to do. It was just one of those interesting times when kind of walking parallel to something or coming at it sideways and not even touching it was right. enough. I mean, art's good for beauty, art's good mm -hmm. for bearing witness, art's good for grief, to be sure. There's a way that um, putting that putting that into art, um, there's a lot of, I, I would say there's a lot of grace in it. There's a lot of um, life. And I haven't worked something out if I haven't got it into my art. That, that's, mm -hmm. how I, that's how I do it. And it's, it's very, very moving. I wouldn't, you know, I, I, we had talked about that piece and I talked about being seen and seeing and 
this sort mm-hmm. of uh, power differential, and, and I thought about shame actually, but um, that that all just um, yeah, it's it's very very moving to hear that, and I, I I'm just thinking about um, just the little bit that I know about you, and, and looking around the room. Obviously, you have some deer that are in your life, and there's <laughs> a deer that isn't, and um, yeah, you're not alone. I got a deer that I'm looking for still too, mm-hmm. so um, and I haven't found. And yet I do have deer. So yeah. I think that it, it really works on a sort of human credibility. Um, so I'm very moved. Thanks. It's just fun to make things. It's fun to make things with words. Yeah. And be surprised and the meaning, with what happens. The meaning that's available to talk about the thing next to the thing. Yeah. And actually have clarity and, and reconcile in some ways the thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. It's very moving. Okay, so I think we're drawing close to the end here, but there is one last poem that I thought of, one you brought to my attention. And one thing that I really enjoyed about it was it did one of my favorite things that poems can do, which is make me look again at something that was already so familiar. So this is based on an Old Testament Bible story. I've been hearing this since I was, you know, knee high to a grasshopper or whatever the saying goes. And yet when you read this that day, it cracked my imagination back open and let me see the wonder, the physicality, the relationships, all these things about the story that had been starting to pass over my mind since I just heard it so many times. Hmm. And it brought my attention back to it. So why don't you read it? Really? I've talked enough. You go ahead. And share choreography by Michael Simmons Roberts. Hmm. Choreography. His fist smashes my face. That's no wrestler's move. So it's bare knuckles now. Okay. There's blood in my eye. The lid swells to a hood. I use my head and butt him. His lips bloom like a rose, but he's still ticking, clicking, his tongue on the roof of his mouth. Gamesmanship. The harder I hit, the louder he clicks. We raise the stakes. He jabs me on the nose to get my hands up. Then, with otherworldly speed, He lands a right hand in my guts. Agony. I'm folded, dumbstruck, gasping like a fish. He backs off a moment. Then he knees me in the jaw. My teeth split the tip of my tongue. I'm spitting now, incensed. I grab two fistfuls of his shirt, swing my foot behind his legs, shove. He staggers, falls. With me on top of him, we've landed in the Jabbok Creek. I dunk his face to cool him off, to make him choke and talk. He comes up clicking still. I slap him. He stares at me. Are angels speechless? This one's wingless, solid, without weight. Perhaps he's trying to talk. It could be t or k, some stammering. Gabriel with a message? I relax my grip to listen. He sees his chance and turns, rolls me in the stream. 
taps the hollow on my thigh and something gives. He helps me up. He's damaged me. Somehow he slid my hip out of its bone cup, left me clipped and limping. When I stand, his clicking stops. It dawns on me. That was no stutter, but a beat. The dance is over. You had me there, he says. I had to do your leg to settle things. He brushes off his shirt. I hobble to the water's edge to wash. I shout to him, what was your name? I don't know if he hears me. I can feel that all the way up my back. Yeah. <laughs> I know. His lips bloomed like a rose, too. It's just such a striking image. So what may, what led you to bring that to share? Well, I spent... When everybody else was reading poetry in the first couple decades of their life, I was playing football. I was wrestling. I was lifting weights. And, mm-hmm. and I've been, you know... I, I know what fighting feels like. And I, I think that... Um, the embodied physicality, the um, the give and the take, the idea that this is choreography and yet it's it's aggression and and frankly it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of tensions in here. They wrestled all night, is how the story goes, yeah. and that's something I think didn't register until this poem that this is a drawn out all night body on body, yeah. and even the idea of the angel needing to lame him for it to be able to, you know, work out. Like, Jacob must have been something else. Well, I mean, it's it, what it, it, there's a lot here, and a lot of the stuff listeners may not like, but it's, it's, it's aggression and it's intimacy. Mm-hmm. There's confrontation, and then there's, like, gifting. Yeah. There's wounding, and there's, like, it's sacred. Yeah. And that's the, I mean, that's the world I live in, and I know not everybody does, so I don't, necessarily need to read this to people on the bus when I'm <laughs> going across America. But there are a few, and a few in, in, in the, my social context, that uh, would definitely get that and say, I don't know if that's poetry, but I sure as hell like that one, boy. Mm-hmm. And that's the Bible, too. Oh, man. Yeah. Where'd you say you got that, Craig? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of people listen to this podcast and are you know, avid poetry lovers already, but many that I've spoken to are looking for a place to go to find more good stuff. So would you recommend the two poets that you brought today? Is that a... Well, they're better than me. Uh, (laughs) Michael Simmons Roberts and B.H. Fairchild are two... two, um, You know, we were talking about your living room over here and how your books are upstairs, but Mm -hmm. you keep good company upstairs, presumably. (laughs) Um, And I I feel like with Michael Simmons Roberts in front of me and B.H. Fairchild and just what these books, even physically, having traveled with these books, I've kept good company. Yeah. So Um, what are the books that you wouldn't pack away because you need to have them out, hmm. even when you're moving? That I should just yeah I should literally just uh, look at your stacks yeah, go back to picture. what's not in the in the, mm-hmm. the studio right now getting ready to be boxed. Um, Forche, <laughs> Carolyn, um, William Kittredge. Oh man, do you know that name? No. He's a prose guy. He's not poetry, but I'll tell you what, his prose is as good as 
he, he's a, um, there's a, there's an honesty in his work, a, a kind of um, a truth telling in his work that is, um, I don't know, secular, prophetic, I don't know what you want to call it, mm-hmm. but the guy's unreal. Um, early um, Gary Snyder, mm. some of his work poems. He writes prose poetry as well, doesn't he? Or and he's he... done some of the haiku and the okay. haiboon. The haiboon mm-hmm. is a form that he's I've learned from him immensely. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I like his work a lot. The work poems, and I love what he does with haiboon. Um, yeah, to, to jump back to the, and we can cut this if we want, but that Pegasus piece is a haiboon. And mm-hmm. after hearing, after the horse being run into the ground, I have a nice little shame haiku, and I say something... The poem says something like, um, I killed a god the day I was born. Mm. Pegasus died. Because mm-hmm. you know? at 19, I drove that horse yeah. at 20. Wow. Um, so, I mean, you know, my wife and I, she, she, she and Dave, I think, are the only people that see it. And I thought, boy, does that haiku come before or does mm. it come after? Yeah. And I think it's after. But we'll try it out and you'll tell me what you think. But, yeah, um, interesting. So, I mean, I, I read for content and I read for form. So anybody working in High Boone, even if I don't like their content, I mean, I'm going to have to see how they... You're researching. They yeah. 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 Um, um, yeah. And then Wendell Berry means an awful lot to me. I mean, there's not that many elders that are sturdy and steady, and he's mm-hmm. one of them in my mind. Um, and again, you know, his poetry, his Sabbath poems mean a lot to me. Yeah. I don't think I, I, I valued them until I actually got a chance to study them at the seminary. And we looked at... Um, the conditions under which he's been writing those things mm-hmm. and what it means to honor the Sabbath with words or silence. Mm. And um, the, his Sabbath poems are, are uh, they're a little bit uh, poemy. They're a little bit uh, religious sounding. Yeah. But there's there's times when he gets angry and prophetic and, and he laments yeah. <laughs> with unapologetic mm-hmm. energy. And I, those are his angry poems are unbelievable, in my opinion. Uh, the Mad Farmer stuff. Yeah, I just, need to read more of that. I definitely need to. So if people want to find out more about you, what you're up to, your work, where could they go? I know one place in the last issue of the online poetry journal, Triggerfish Critical Review, you were the featured artist. And how many of your pieces were in there? There was a lot. Yeah, I mean, Dave, I gave Dave permission to kind of yank what he wanted from the webpage. And he he was... uh, he was ambitious. I thought that uh, there were quite a few, maybe maybe more than we needed. Maybe the interview went long, but but that was um, that's a place. And then I have a website where I have links to different things that I've done over the last decade. Um, so yeah, if you Google my name and everything's working, you should have multiple hits there. Okay, maybe um, I'll try to include a link to that. Yeah. Show notes. And if anybody's listening and has a question or a comment, I'm uh, be glad to hear. You know, by all means. Permission to speak freely granted, right? Awesome. Well, yeah. thank you so much in this crazy time of out-of-state real estate transactions and packing for coming and talking about poetry in person out loud with me tonight, Craig. It's it's a it's a delight to do. I was telling my realtor right before I came over, I said it's been real estate and fish for the yeah. last two weeks. Yeah, so <laughs> this I is get... a little poetry break. <laughs> yeah, bass fishing and real estate are important. Don't get me wrong, but... Yeah. So is this. Well, I hope there's a lot of fish and a lot of poetry in your future life in the desert. <laughs> Part of my vision for Take This Poem was to have it be interactive. 
I imagined it as a virtual bonfire poetry reading, where friends, family, local poets, and you can come together to warm our hands on some poetry. So what would that look like? Well, I'm glad you asked. You could send me a voice recording of you reading a poem to be included in a mailbag poetry reading. Commenting on the poem is welcome, but optional. Don't be shy. It's the only voice you got. What better use for it do you have than reading beautiful words out loud? Also, you could request a poem that you'd like to hear me read and ponder on the show. Or tell me what you've been thinking about these days and I could play literary matchmaker and choose a poem for you. And by the way, I am aware that I have a small but loyal following of youngsters out there and these invitations are all open to them as well. Send any of these or other ideas you have to takethispoempodcast at gmail.com and join me in sharing good poems with this little community. I hope to hear from you soon.